Hey guys, you like science? You like learning? We can't cover everything on this podcast, certainly not as in-depth as I'd like to all of the time. Well, here's an important topic you need to know about. Water. Do you have it? Are you drinking it? Where is it coming from? All sorts of important questions you need to know. There is now the new Waterline podcast, which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. Waterline podcast aims to bring the latest scientific advances in technological solutions while exploring economic models and identifying key players in the global effort to secure water sources, create efficient water usage, and make water safe for everyone. I just checked out a really cool, interesting episode called Want Not, Waste Not, Wastewater. It's all about what happens to your wastewater. It's going to waste a lot of times, but does it need to? Absolutely not. What happens to all that discarded wastewater? Once treated, it has uh, economic and ecological value that can even drive nation's economies. It could even light up your house. How? Find out on that episode of the Waterline Podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. All right, everybody, real brief intro and outro this week. You're welcome. We've been doing a lot of updates lately, and uh, I, I don't have any big up. I've been taking tons of different meetings, lots of exciting things happening, but I cannot update you just yet with what is going on in some of the various projects that I have. I'm very close to having some deals in place, also very close to bankruptcy. Very exciting stuff. Could go either way. That is part of the fun. So I should have more information soon. Um, another psychedelic episode this week. Sometimes I don't like I, I don't I like spacing out my topics a bit more. But sometimes when I'm in the midst of various projects or writing certain shows, I'm having more of whether it be evolutionary psychologists or you know in this case psychedelic researchers on uh, you can sometimes get a sense of the things that i'm working on outside of the podcast by hearing about what i'm talking about and who i'm seeking out during the podcast this was a fantastic one i'm hoping we're going to do a part two soon i just moved just moved from la to the portland area and so not sure as as certain as usual about my LA schedule, but I would like to get Ryle come back on very soon. Excellent guest doing excellent research at USC. Real exciting stuff. And so so if you happen to if you're like, ah, I don't I don't need to hear any more about this psychedelic research hippie nonsense hey i'm with you to each their own don't you fret don't you worry your pretty little head here we're, we're gonna get right back into uh, uh all sorts of other fun stuff that we talk about on the show real soon i just finished the 111 city tour i'm finally able to start getting back on top of this podcast and make it what i truly want it to be i still have not been drinking and not been smoking cigarettes. I've been taking much better care of myself, feeling good. It's funny, my editor, Jimmy, uh, he texted me. He heard the intros last week. It was the first time that I hadn't, I think I hadn't drank it like th in like three days, four days at the time that I recorded the 
um, the intros and outros last week. And he was like, <laughs> it was like the first time that I've gone like a day without drinking in a very long time. And he was like, hey, just a heads up. Um, I don't think anyone else will notice, but you sounded kind of drunk. <laughs> when you were recording those and so apparently i just sound drunk when i'm sober and vice versa because i've actually been drunk while recording these before and he's never said that and the one time that i have finally quit drinking that's when i sound drunk um i'm i am i'm fairly positive right now i will say that feel a lot better feel like uh, on top of my stuff you know the tour wore me down and everything so that's all good news but yeah that is to say that i don't know exactly what is going to happen in terms of guests going forward i'm hoping to scramble the line of a bunch up for next week but i do i do really believe especially once we start getting more sponsors for the show that this podcast is uh is going to have a big jump in um in quality uh, over, over this summer and it's time. It's all about having time to dedicate to it. And I'm finding ways of doing that. So thank you all for the support and thank you to laughable. Speaking of small businesses that are one day going to be epic laughable for all of your laughing ability (laughs) needs go to laughable you can check out you can subscribe to me you can subscribe to all your favorite uh favorite comics i just um i just released a final um a final riff board uh me and my old roommate dave Waite. we we never did a final one really and and so we did one it's pretty adorable true story there's some girl one one of our uh comic friends um met this cute girl dave's this lovesick puppy dog and met some cute girl out on the road that said that she knew dave this mutual friend of ours and uh and the friend didn't get her name apparently this girl had been listening to every episode of the riff board she's like one of 50 people on earth that had done that some cute girl that that dave is destined to marry in lincoln nebraska and uh and and now (laughs) and so and so we did one last final riff board to uh to find her how great is that and so that's just one of the many awesome things if you're following me then you get to that pops right up on your feed unlaughable you're not gonna find that any other way um maybe if you subscribe to the riff board but whatever then you're not going to hear me on all these other podcasts you're not going to hear the hilarious dave wait on all these other podcasts it's really the only way to get all of all of the best of your favorite people so check out laughable everybody and talk to you even much much more briefly than this on the back end are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are 
All right, guys, I'm very excited. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am talking to Dr. Ra El Khan, who is an MD, he's a PhD, he is a psychiatrist working with the, the USC Department of Psychiatry and doing research at the USC Brain and Creativity Institute. So thank you very much for joining me today. Can you share just a little bit of your uh, background, how you got into this, how you got where you are today? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. A little bit of my background and how I got into this. So I grew up in the States, in the northwest part of the country, and really my first inkling that I was especially interested in the human mind as a subject for deeper study uh, came fairly early related to having an older sister with autism. Mm. And uh, so as a uh, young lad, I was experiencing a, a bit of befuddlement, bewilderment about who is this other being uh, and why is she so different from, you know, the friends that I'm then getting to know, you know, by the time you're in your uh, early uh, school years, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, you start to, you know, realize the uh, kind of socialization norms within society that are being taught to you and you know, I, I noticed that my sister was not reciprocating. Was she actually diagnosed at the time? Because this she was is... diagnosed, yeah. So she was born in '72, and by the time she was three, she'd been diagnosed. Mm. She was not verbal until I was born, and uh, and then the verbal uh, development happened very slowly uh, after that, and uh, you know had a lot of the classic. Uh, signs and symptoms of autism, although she is a good example of the wide variety of autistic phenotypes in the sense that unlike a kind of classic autistic uh, picture that people have in mind of some childhood really won't engage with others at all uh, because they're so internally preoccupied, uh, her kind of native... Uh, uh, attitude towards new people uh, when she met them was to go up to them and ask a bunch of questions, <laughs> some of which were, you know, socially inappropriate questions, but included some very stereotyped uh, kind of criteria that she would ask of everyone, like their first and last name, their date of birth, their names of their parents. And interestingly enough, she would remember those dates of birth <laughs> of the random people that she would meet when she would then meet them again a year later or what have you. So um, That's incredible. Yeah, so she had a little bit, you know, in terms of this kind of memory for, for birth dates of that kind of savant quality, although it kind of stopped there. She wasn't like a numerical savant in general. Uh, but, you know, when I then came to learn about autism in college starting to study psychology i did you know struggle a little bit with it was she even autistic you know because she was going up to people all the time and you know not just on, in her own world but you know the sine qua non of autism is the inability to have a kind of theory of mind about others an understanding of what others are trying to say or what their framework of reference is in their interactions and she certainly did have that issue you know she she was not able to really be socially appropriate, although she was socially pleasant and people in generally enjoyed interacting with her when she was in a kind of a baseline state of her, her normal mood because there was a lot of buoyancy to the kind of mood that she uh, lived with and 
while there's a little bit of a simplistic childlike quality, you know, that's actually a, a pleasant quality to be around and it's just a little incongruous in an older uh, adolescent and, and adult. Um, but she did pass away. I speak to her about her a bit of a ta- past tense because she passed away at the age of 33 from a, a rare type of cancer. But, you know, my my experience, my interest in you know, the varieties of kinds of minds was sparked by having this older sister who was, you know, so different from my developing self and the developing self of uh, the cohort of children we were around. Um, I'm curious how much, so you started digging into it when you were in college and this was, this was like around what year, because how how much information was available at the time that you were because it's it's isn't autism it's been pretty poorly understood i mean still seems like it's kind of poorly understood um but it's there hasn't been it's it's more of a recent area of research right well it's certainly been um it's been studied and understood at least to some extent for a long time Mm -hmm. it's what's what's recent is an apparent increase in its prevalence and the degree to which that's a true increase in prevalence versus an increase in diagnosis is still not really fully uh, agreed upon in the field. Um, but certainly already in the 70s, you know, people had been being diagnosed autistic for at least 20 years. I don't know, you know, exactly when the uh, autism diagnosis was first applied, but I would be surprised if it was less than 80 years ago. The research has become much more brain-based as, you know, with all, um, as with all psychiatric and neurologic disorders, um, you know, it has a neurologic kind of correlative basis. And up until the 70s, uh, when, you know, I was a child, uh, it had not been investigated with a, a neural uh, kind of basis. And now there's quite a lot of research, neural, neural research as well as, you know, more in-depth uh, cognitive research and, you know, quite a lot of uh, cognitive approaches to therapy that uh, seem to have some significant efficacy that were not around when she was a child. But the interesting thing for me was this sense of feeling very connected to my sister and having a sense like I knew what was going on inside her mind. And um, and then when I would go to the doctor's appointments with her, I would have the sense that the doctors didn't have as much insight into her as me. And I was very fascinated by that. Like, why isn't the doctor like knowing more than I should know? Like, I'm just a little kid. And that really got me fascinated around the question of maybe there's something about what I'm able to understand about these kind of unusual conditions that actually uh, might help to understand people like my sister in general. I I remember I had that thought and I I wrote about that um, kind of insight that was very uh, kind of powerful for me as as a kind of component of my freshman year of high school kind of autobiography (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, where I I said I want to be a psychiatrist someday related to that Um, and of course the truth is I I, didn't it was not a straight line association between some early fascination with that and being quite sure of it the whole way through Um, by the time I was 
finishing up with high school, I was actually much more engaged with the possibility of being either an environmental lawyer or maybe an actor and very seriously considering never doing another day of academic study again as soon as I graduated high school. <laughs> so, you know, there were a lot of other contributors. Probably the most significant of which was, um, you know, having a number of family members with very significant psychiatric illness in addition to the autism. So, in particular, my sister, uh, towards her late teens, uh, had the first of what became a series of manic episodes. And uh, uh, so days where, she, you know, periods of time where she would spend days without sleeping much, have a very increase in uh, energy and, you know, start having really odd, strange behaviors and, and uh, uh, proclamations, you know, beliefs, sometimes, you know, frankly, delusional beliefs, um, things like thinking that... Uh, that she was actually my mom, not my sister, or that she, you know, owned uh, owned everything. <laughs> you know, these kind of, grand, you could say a kind of simplistic type of grandiosity. Um, and she eventually was diagnosed uh, after the initial bipolar uh, schizoaffective because some of that, at least the, the psychiatrist who saw her at the time, um, sense that there was some level of some psychotic process at play even once when she was not going up in her uh, in an up or down state of her moods i'm not sure i've ever heard that word before schizoaffective schizoaffective disorder is a relatively recent more recent disorder relative to schizophrenia and bipolar which are kind of the parent disorders that it's a kind of melding of um but essentially it it implies that there's both a, a very significant mood instability characterized by manic episodes depressive episodes as well as unlike classic bipolar disorder where people are in a, when they're in a relatively stable uh, mood space whether that's um, you know what you might call euthymia basically feeling not depressed or uh, overly uh, energized or for many bipolar patients you know they're kind of more baseline state as a kind of dysthymia Whatever it is as their baseline, that that baseline state is characterized by some ongoing presence of psychosis, the kind of delusion on thinking or uh, significant auditory or visual hallucinations. So schizoaffective disorder is a disorder that kind of captures that particular flavor of uh, a, a, a person with both mood instability and psychosis, and that psychosis is not just present during the unstable mood periods. Um, so that was the diagnosis she was given. Um, and then at age 33, she passed away from the th uh, cancer of the thymus, a very unusual cancer to have. So, you know, overall, um, she had uh, a number of fairly rare, uh, you know, medical and psychiatric disorders, um, but was also an incredibly kind of influential person on my own development in my life and also somebody who, not just myself, but pretty much everyone who got to know her in the course of her life felt, you know, quite kind of lucky to have gotten to know just because of this kind of simple feeling of of love and innocence that she, uh, she kind of uh, brought to her interactions with the world. Um, so, you know, I think that those were some very formative uh, contributors to my interest in psychiatry and probably the most uh, formative um, uh, 
influence was my experience uh, around the time I was starting college of some experiences, partly through uh, what was a, a growing meditative practice at the time, and partly through youthful self-experimentation with drugs and, you know, what came about in my own internal experience were, were very profound states of uh, a kind of mystical union and um, and what felt like, you know, rushes over some periods of time of, you know, insights into the kind of illusory nature of the sense of solidity to the world that, uh, you know, just kind of was a given uh, in my experiential awareness as it is for most of us. Mm -hmm. um, and in combination with those experiences, also a sense of a kind of inner calling to go into the healing arts. Um, and, um, you know, those experiences were characterized by some degree of dysfunction even in my ability to kind of interact in the world in a kind of useful way. And, uh, some encounters with the psychiatric system and what I experienced myself was a sense that the the worldview that psychiatry currently has about the things that I'm going through is extremely limited. It's like this flatland worldview that takes into account nothing of the deep spiritual wisdom of the ages, which is not, you know, in my experience at the time and to this day, is not a kind of fanciful product of human imagination. It's actually describing something about the, uh, the nature of human consciousness itself and what we are actually capable of. And those things are just not even in the DSM. You know, uh, there's been a, a re relatively recent inclusion of a kind of uh, qualifier to um, a uh, diagnostic uh, consideration called a, um, a spiritual emergency. Um, and it's meant to denote that for some people, their experience is so uh, dominated by spiritual themes that, you know, maybe it's worth reconsidering the diagnosis through the framework that maybe there is a spiritual emergency going on and that it's not just garden variety bipolar disorder. But it's interestingly enough, I've spoken to a lot of psychiatrists. This was started in DSM 4. This qualifier was added by a couple of psychiatrists in the Bay Area who had been working with a number of people around these kinds of experiences and thought this is, you know, a common enough thing that actually may have some validity to how we should best treat people going through these experiences that we're going to petition to get it added to the diagnostic statistical manual that psychiatrists use as their kind of frame of reference, both in America and abroad. And they were successfully able to get it in, but most psychiatric residents and faculty that I speak to in the modern America are still not aware that that qualifier is even in the DSM. Mm. So, you know, it continues to be a, a very off the map of common psychiatric knowledge in even amongst trained board certified psychiatrists. What's interesting to me is, is you can go and, um, well, we were both at the psychedelic science conference, uh, this year and you can, you know, there's all the, uh, different, booths uh, i forget what they call it, the the room with all the different artists in it but when you look at some of these paintings that people are making where they're trying to 
replicate um, an experience they had on LSD or DMT or whatever it might be. I mean, <laughs> you look at this painting and you go, that's real. That's like a real thing that someone is seeing. How in the world are they seeing it? You know, this is like a smart, intelligent person that can talk to you about their experience and everything else. This is, and um, I think a lot of, it's interesting how fast we just write people off as, as crazy. I often think with schizophrenia, like, okay, someone's seeing, say someone's seeing like an alien or whatever. And I, I mean, I still want to like know more, like, how are they possibly seeing that? What, what is going on where they're gaining some access just because obviously they are genuinely perceiving that and, and, uh, what's happening. So, it, but it seems like culturally, we just write these things off and just go like, oh, that's just crazy. And then you don't have to really think about it anymore outside of that. <laughs> and and to me, it's just endlessly fascinating to um, keep digging. And I've, I've been recently giving talks about my own personal DMT experiences and trying to figure out how um, how I see a lot of like exemplar kind of things, a lot of... Uh, um interesting like i'll see just like a real archetype of uh say just a sale like a 50s salesman or something like that in a hallucination and why how is the brain putting that together and is that you know it often makes me think is that these kind of frameworks that our brains are using to help us put together our visual perception out here and down in in these other layers of perception that we're able to um, kind of, I guess, artificially access through through psychedelics. Um, you're able to see some of the basic, like some I, I've seen, I've on some various things. I've seen like kind of, I'm, I'm looking at say this office. If I were on say a large number of uh, a large amount of mushrooms right now, I could see like all of your cabinets in kind of like matrix like codes which is kind of like the foundation of this raw data that your consciousness is using to kind of put together kind of like the the binary code that's running the interface of of your computer you know and you don't really think about it it's just the little thing that you click around and it's easy to navigate but um but it, it seems like it's it's gaining some access to some of the the raw data that's down there and i i mean i don't see how that's not exciting to everybody I, I it seems like this is this is kind of a exciting thing for neuroscience to explore where it's to understand uh axon and dendrites and 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 how they're communicating and neural loops on this very small level and then to have this idea of this this part seems to do a lot of fight or flight stuff and this part seems to process color but there seems like there's this other layer between the very small and kind of the bigger modules or whatever parts of the brain that are uh, that psychedelics are able to access somehow and it seems like to me it seems like one of the most exciting things that neuroscience could look into it could potentially be a way of pulling out some new ideas and possibly testing ideas but uh but anyway that's just it it it, uh it bothers me that this gets written off like as a crazy because schizophrenia is um 
dealt with differently in different cultures and in in the u.s a schizophrenic state is just like well you need to just lock this person up and institute them or have them on these very serious medications where um, I think that there can be more learned from those states than than people are realizing. Yeah, I think that may be the case as well. I think that, um, you know, there's nothing that unique about the U.S. in terms of how we treat schizophrenia relative to the rest of the modernizing world. And we, we do also know that the schizophrenia rate seems to be about 1%, 1, 1 to 1.5% throughout the world, um, and that in some third world countries, you know, there's even much more brutal treatment of schizophrenics, although the full range of that is something that I've yet to really get into studying, despite a deep interest in transcultural psychiatry. And I think that, you know, one of the things that touches on your comment is the kind of uh, the cultural world of social relations understandings that really deeply informs what we consider sick and not sick behavior in a given society and also deeply affects it. Um, in, uh, in the modern West, uh, we really have a large uh, kind of preference in terms of the social world in which we live to uh, favor logic and reason, rationality, over the experiencing of our emotions and our connectedness with others. And it leaves us feeling very cut off and, you know, a, a massive epidemic of, of depressive disorders and anxious disorders um, that are not found to the same extent in, uh, in cultures that are not yet making that transition or not maybe yet is maybe a actually overly... Um, overly pessimistic view the notion that that those cultures ever will have to is not necessarily the case but you know that transition towards a uh, worldview that lacks a sense of meaning and social um, kind of interrelatedness at its base um, that is not a transition that all cultures necessarily will go through and yet that's the trend in the world that we live in today and uh, there are competing trends, you know, this uh, very significant trend in medicine today to acknowledge that a focus on wellness and prevention and resilience is actually what we need to fix our healthcare system, not more technological advances. Technological advances will help for some very specific things, but for the majority of chronic illness that causes the majority of burden of illness, suffering, lost wages, and, uh, you know, social impact, um, you know, really where the benefit will come from is by increasing every person's awareness of how to self-regulate their own emotional mind-body interactive state. And, you know, I think that's really where the interest in both meditative uh, practice research as well as psychedelics research is going to be generated from, you know, what you said about the potential of psychedelics to really help illuminate the nature of consciousness and the nature of the mind-body interaction. Mind-body, of course, implies mind-brain interaction that is uh, certainly central to studying consciousness. Um, is profound. And, you know, what's an even stronger motivation for uh, investment of time, energy, and dollars 
from both the researchers as well as the potential funders is the potential to relieve human suffering. And I think that that's really the thing that's becoming apparent in this latest phase of a kind of re-engagement of interest by Western science in the psychedelics. It's being driven by that, you know. Um, it's clear that they can be used in ways that are not especially health-promoting if you use it in an uncontrolled, you know, random manner, party environments, etc. Mm -hmm. But it's also becoming more and more clear that some of those early large evidence bases that implied psychedelics could have clinical benefit for everything from depression and anxiety to uh, really s severe anxiety associated with impending knowledge of impending death and um, and PTSD, you know, that these are conditions that still afflict humanity and that our best treatments are not all that effective for yet. And uh, and so there's a re-engagement in the use of psychedelics as a clinical intervention for that. And what's quite fascinating is, you know, the neural uh, changes in, in induced by psychedelic drugs work that I've been involved with over these last years. Um, is showing pretty clearly uh, some of the likely mechanisms by which benefits can be uh, accrued um, for clinical uh, conditions like depression and anxiety and emotional dysregulation. Um, so, you know, I, th I think that overall uh, we're, we're heading in a positive direction even while there are these amazingly and depressingly real uh, trends towards, uh, you know, the destruction of our environment and the uh, increase in the human-to-human -human dehumanization uh, and, you know, self-other kind of um, tribal uh, disintegration of a, a sense of common humanity. So, you know, we live in a very interesting time. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that we are, there is a lot of pressure to repress um, a lot of our emotional states and a lot of our ideas, and people are worried about sounding crazy or sounding whiny or whatever it might be, and this is kind of things like, you know, you see PTSD happen when uh, when I'm, uh, I, I don't know, I was just gesturing with my hand as, as I, you thought I was pointing somewhere. Um, I was pointing into my imagination. Um, the uh, with PTSD, the the idea of you know you're you're a veteran, um, and the idea of of you know talking about this with somebody is like, well, I don't want to like be complaining. I had other people that had it worse, and you know this kind of pull up your bootstraps attitude. Well, the, the brain doesn't really work that way. Repressing ideas <laughs> tends to make them a lot stronger. I often wonder if. Uh, you know, when I hear of people like hearing voices, which I, I mean, it's kind of a cliche to um, to say like a, a violent voice from schizophrenia or whatever, because that's not uh, anywhere near the norm. Um, but but say someone does hear a voice that's like telling them to like kill people or whatever. I don't think that it's helping to like if I had a voice like that, I'd be like. Hey, let's chat this out, voice. <laughs> like I, I've had odd hallucinations before, where I'm like, 
okay, let's hear your case. If you think this is important, let's let's chat this out. Uh, are you sure that's the right solution? <laughs> we should go. But instead, you're having to repress it. You can't tell anyone that because that's like a really creepy thing. And then it, as it gets repressed, it gets stronger and stronger. And then um, I think this repression also just leads to more and more problems. And then as people are having more and more psychological problems, um, they're becoming more and more vulnerable, and as they're becoming more vulnerable, they're um, not. They're, they're becoming more defensive and more scared of these outgroups, and uh, and you know be we tend to kind of project our inner worlds on things, and when we're having um, difficulties and uh, financial troubles, or you know you're just scared or whatever, you tend to kind of just project and be like, oh, these other people, they're, they're the threat. That's it's someone else. They're taking, they're going to take our jobs. That's what the threat is. And a lot of times, um, many of our problems are just kind of within us and, and we just need to start kind of opening up and, and becoming more mindful. Uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I was rather, I was rather, uh, um, you know, I've, I didn't start meditating until about four or five years ago. I had a very like small town Midwestern upbringing and the idea of meditating. Um, I mean, if you had told me about meditating when I was like 12, it would have been like something that sissies did or something like that, you know? And, um, it's something that's really changed my life. And I try to, I try to tell people, you know, I try to tell my family and parents and everything. And it's, it's, it's just something that, a lot of people aren't even going to try. Like, can you just for like ten days in a row, ten minutes? It's this little app you can get. It's it's free. Just it's just ten minutes out of your day. Maybe it will relax you. Maybe you'll feel a little better. Maybe you'll come up with some new insights for some of your problems. And people are. Uh, I think that people that are the most vulnerable and repressing things the most are are kind of the most scared. Sometimes they don't even realize it, and even less likely to. Uh, maybe try a new approach like say meditation and that's I mean this is this is like what I'm trying to do personally is how do you present these ideas in a way where people will be like oh okay that's because a lot of people are going to be like oh this is a bunch of like new agey hippie nonsense that's just what I'm not saying that's right for them to think that's just what a lot of people are going to think and how to break through that how to break how to have how to get um other neuroscientists to be interested and open to like oh maybe psychedelics is a legitimate field of research which it feels like it's starting to come around a little bit in that regard um yeah interestingly enough um both you know since i started uh research in these domains in 2001 as a first year graduate student at uc san diego department of neurosciences uh i've watched the growth of these two different fields um and certainly the growth of the meditation research has been more robust and uh and kind of uh a, a few steps ahead of the uh growth of the research on the effects of psychedelics uh, but they are both really in active growth phases. And um, in regards to both, I think that it is the scientific research, both the 
neuroscientific and neural mechanism research as well as the clinical research that will actually normalize these mm -hmm. things in in society and already is very much in the process of doing so um you know there's a bit of a mindfulness craze in our uh in our society today in the sense that you know people are slapping mindfulness on mm -hmm. any product that they want to sell and finding that they can sell more of that product and oftentimes even teaching mindfulness in a very mindless manner and um you know so there's a lot of mislabeled <laughs> mindfulness yeah needing to be more mindful about my <laughs> mindfulness right huh. um and you know what you were saying about well how can people who just think this is for sissies you know when they go to their doctor and their doctor says look you know the reality is there are three pillars to wellness if you want to be healthy it's actually pretty simple you know, you have to really focus on eating what you could call a nutritarian diet or a diet rich in live foods and very low in packaged dead foods full of preservatives that's sugar and uh, other white powders like uh, bleached white flour, etc. Um, and number two, you need to get a lot of exercise, very regular, intense as well as aerobic exercise and preferably in nature, uh, exposure to the elements that we grew up with in our evolutionary her heritage. Right. And number three, mindfulness. And that doesn't have to be sitting in a, a room by yourself for half an hour. It could be a mindful movement, but something about an attitude of mind that doesn't just come natural to us in our culture, which we currently are calling mindfulness. And it refers to the capacity that we all have to be aware of what's happening and not reactive about it, but fully aware. And so these are the three pillars of wellness and these are the things that will end your cycle of you know, stress-related chronic illness. And when every doctor is telling that to every patient, eventually you know, it's just part of culture. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, the, you know, the beginning stages of that is what we're in now. I mean, it's you know, uh, started in terms of really Western clinical practice incorporating mindfulness with this intervention that John Kabat-Zinn actually pioneered in the 80s called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And that particular intervention is now available in medical centers throughout the country and throughout the world, including in China and Korea, where these practices were done in more traditional contexts for hundreds and hundreds of years. But they just didn't, as, as westernization occurred, they didn't know how to present these uh, teachings about attention and the mind-body regulation process in a way that was religion-free. Right. When in fact they are re religious-free concepts and lessons for you know, basic human mind. Um, and now that's happening, and it's happening at an expanding pace. It's also true that some of the Buddhist philosophy, which has resonance with philosophies from other spiritual and religious traditions, some of that Buddhist philosophy, when taken out, when, when the mindfulness practices are taken out of that context, lose probably lose some of their efficacy. But they're still quite efficacious. And, of course, it's worth secularizing these practices because there's no reason that only people who are associated with a particular spiritual or religious affiliation where these practices have been taught traditionally should be benefiting from these kind of common human 
capacities of mental regulation and promotion of well-being. So, you know, I, I think that it's a very interesting time, interesting time we're living in. And part of the thing that is changing things is that within the scientific mind, there is a search for truth. <laughs> right. And uh, so while the negative side of the kind of um, uh, ramping up of the uh, the uh, kind of industrial information age kind of uh, uh, societies really you could say from the West you know the this this tradition of the rational mind seeking to gain greater control over and manipulability over the natural world you know it's kind of comes through the Western tradition more than the Eastern tradition nonetheless it's a when when you know human beings are human beings and we know when we notice you know some people are are having more comfortable lives with more resources you know, we start mimicking each other. Whoever's doing that better, you know, the other folks around the world kind of say, oh, we should probably do that too, and that makes sense. But in that process, there's an unfortunate kind of favoring of the rational mind over the receptive feeling part of ourselves. And so that's a part that is being self-corrected because there is this kind of scientific, if there's any grand uh, kind of ruling um, intellectual kind of framework for the Western mind, it is science. It's not Christianity, actually. Christianity certainly played a strong role in some of the expansion and kind of uh, literal um, taking over of land and killing of people in the process of the Western expansion of, of land. But the the uh, the worldview that kind of informs our everyday interactions is a science-based one. And um, I think that is somewhat of a saving grace, actually, for us. Um, as long as we don't get lost in scientism, then you know, the kind of idea that because something seems rational and, you know, the materialist kind of explanation of things seems kind of most parsimonious, therefore, we're just going to assume it's true without investigating. Right. <laughs> you know, as long as we don't get lost in that trap, which, you know, that's not the scientific method to get lost in that trap. Um, you know, that there's this kind of self-correcting mechanism by being kind of a scientifically attuned society that the search for truth is actually important. And one of the aspects of the search of truth is those things that lead to well-being are true whether they seem rational or not. And, you know, at this point, maybe it did seem a little irrational that taking a psychedelic drug that had the potential to, you know, kind of disintegrate the kind of orderliness of your perception, that that could somehow produce wellness. Like, what? The, how does that make sense? Well, it turns out there are very good reasons why it makes sense. But you have to be willing to, like, you know, look. And, you know, one of the sources of uh, of wisdom for our human society continues to be those practices and those experiences that throughout the history of humanity, going back to before the Industrial Revolution, were found to be especially efficacious. And one of those particular practices is shamanism. You know, shamanism around the world was uh, kind of the native um, spiritual uh, practice and worldview and was deeply informed by the efficacy of the psychedelic plants that grew around the world. 
Um, and of course, one could easily say, well, that's fine. That was an interesting, you know, kind of historical footnote. But what's actually so about it is that those practices, while they may have had, you know, been associated in the intellectual domain with some real kind of mythological worldviews that we're never going to go back to, in the experiential domain of what it took to help somebody feel more fully healthy and have a sense of return return to vitality and meaning in their life you know these practices were really beneficial for people back then that's why they were the way that we all did it in the tribes around the world yeah that's this is like the first time in human history that that the shamans weren't kind of the leaders of communities and people weren't getting together and doing these regular right. um ceremonies and having these uh having these experiences um i would like if you're if you're open to it we can discuss afterwards because we only have a few minutes left um uh i would like to have you um back on sometime to go specifically through like some of the studies that you've done if you're open to that sometime in the yeah. future yeah, we can um, do that because this is kind of uh, uh, a little more of a well we got your history and a little more of a broader philosophical uh discussion about things as well but um i because i think I mean, this why I have this podcast is because I really, I really believe that um, understanding science can help mindfulness, which can lead to change. And because uh, I know just from my own experience and from um, you know spending a lot of time in uh, just my upbringing, and you know, I meet all kinds of people on the road, and so I try to understand where a lot of people are coming from, and and a lot of people kind of uh, basically. Like I would have never, if if it was just monks doing meditation, I would have never been open to it. It would have, for me, it would have seemed like a little too woohooey. Honestly, I would have been like, they're kind of dressed silly, and like you know, there's a, it, I I would have had biases about it. But because I, you know, heard through, you know, it started penetrating um, the scientific community, and there's so much research, and then, uh, you know, I. As I said before, we uh, weren't recording. I I had Andy Puttycomb of of Headspace. That was my first one that I did. What I liked about it is, if there would have been like shocker talk and stuff like that early on, I would have just my biases would have been like, eh, eh screw this. It's it's too like woohooey for me or whatever. Um, but because it's just walking through the practice, which is the way that I need. I mean, other people are going to prefer the spiritual side of it, and that's great. But but the people that I I think are the hardest to reach are the people that are suffering from chronic stress and that's closing them off the most and i do i do believe that science is kind of a way um a way forward like you said you get doctors involved and because i I feel this way now that i'm more and more involved in the in the psychedelic community i think that there's people out there that are doing absolutely amazing things um, that aren't scientists that are like practitioners that are doing just incredible, incredible work. But I'm always sitting around like, okay, well, how do I present this to, to other people that don't know anything about the, cause if you just were to bring them right to this practitioner to someone that's completely unfamiliar, I mean, this person would sound like they were an alien or something when they're talking and um and so science is just this really wonderful way forward with all its many imperfections and everything else i I think is uh is an incredible way to communicate these ideas what just briefly before we go i was wondering if i could get your take on 
um, as as you're because you're kind of newly like out of the psychedelic closet a little bit and and kind of as far as academia goes right like you're... yes and no so i i uh i came out of the psychedelic closet one could say as a grad student you know i i, I did my first couple of years uh as a grad student basically learning eeg neuroscience techniques from one of my thesis co-advisor john Polich, and uh working with long-term meditators but you know, during that process, set up the second part of my graduate work, which was going to Zurich, Switzerland from 2004 to six, and studying the effects of psilocybin on brain activity, um, which, you know, was certainly done with an eye towards the sense that these substances need to be understood more clearly through the the view of their neuroscientific uh you know, the manifestations of the brain effects as a way forward to then understand how best they can be used clinically as well. And um, what is more recent is that after a few years as a, a faculty here at USC, I have gotten to the point where considering where the field is uh, has gone in the last five to 10 years since I was more actively actually collecting that data, data um, I've actually continued to work, you know, successive uh, analyses of that data that comprise my thesis project over the years. And each time I analyze, partly informed by the more recent research that has accrued since the last time I've done so, and there's getting to be a more and more kind of clear set of meanings and importance around the findings that we got. Um, but, you know, even as I've been doing that, what I haven't done is to re-engage in an attempt to get funding and kind of institutional support for the work. And that is the more recent thing. In the last year, I have decided, you know, it really seems like this is an area with too much potential to just watch it from afar I want to be part of. And, um, you know, I'm lucky to be in a place where there's an open mind to exploring these kinds of substances for their clinical benefit. And certainly the the fact that the clinical research to date has been as encouraging as it has would lead anybody with a rational mind and a awareness of what the data actually shows to say, well, yeah, we need to know more if, if there's really a potential to help people who are suffering so greatly um, you know, the fact that these substances have a checkered history within the social world because of an unregulated social use should not have any bearing whatsoever on whether or not we decide to explore how clinically effective they are. And so at this point, I'm very much engaged in that process of looking for funding. And uh, as soon as that funding is identified, I'll be engaged in that kind of work. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I know you got to get out of here, but but I, I was curious how you kind of navigate the um, psychedelic landscape because there's so many different groups of, there's musicians, there, you know, the painter, you know, there's the art side of it, there's, there's the kind of more practitioner, kind of shamanistic kind of side, there's the scientific side, and, um, and then there's, there's also people that are, um, you know, just kind of adventurers, adventurous people that just want to have these experiences. Um, how are how are you as a scientist? Um, how are you navigating all of those? Are, are you tr like are you trying to distance yourself from kind of the recreational side of things, or are you 
looking at what practitioners are doing and seeing how potentially these um, like ceremonies could be studied and turned into scientific publications? What, what's your... Well, I think, you know, the best answer for that is that at a fairly early point in my life, I realized that any uh, either personal or professional interest in psychedelics had to be rooted in the um, engagement in uh, awareness practices, so meditative practice in particular. Um, and so, you know, it's not coincidental that I spent so much of my time over the beginning stages of my career focusing on the effects of meditation on the brain and clinical impact. Because even in the back of my mind, I knew that I still had an interest in the psychedelics. I also knew that those are much more destabilizing and potentially dangerous mm -hmm. ways of accessing a way to change your state of consciousness and through that to eventually change traits of consciousness, the way in which you perceive and relate with the world. Um, so more than anything else, you know, my kind of guiding principle and how I orient towards this is that the psychedelics are not some special thing in and of themselves. You know, they are agents that, and you know, I've been uh, kind of uh, somewhat surprised, but also certainly reinforced in my orientation about these things that the uh, kinds of changes you see as immediate state effects uh, from the acute administration of a psychedelic drug resonate with and have some real n correspondence to the neural changes seen uh, as a state effect of meditation in very long-term practitioners and also as a trade effect that you see in long-term practitioners. Um, so there are aspects of you know the, the uh, switching of the brain into a more present moment awareness, uh, sensorially enriched, and kind of automatic uh, cognitive reactivity, uh, uh, calm down type of state. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately, whether it's the meditation research and the engagement as a practitioner of these kind of things, uh, or the psychedelic research, my, my real orienting guideline is, you know, that I see all these different influences of different groups that you could categorize in different ways. It's all just human beings who want to relieve their own suffering. And so regardless of whether they are an artist or you know, you know, going down to Peru for an ayahuasca ceremony, that, that, that's, those are kind of very superficial aspects of what's actually at play. What's at play is human beings doing what they've always done, which is trying to find some way, sometimes in very kind of uninformed and unwise, and sometimes in ways that are just intuitively right on, finding ways to relieve their suffering and to enjoy themselves. And, um, you know, I think certainly I have, uh, as a clinician, uh, come across plenty of situations where I would not recommend a given person to do a psychedelic in a given right. circumstance. There are actually a fairly limited number of circumstances that I think really makes sense to recommend for an individual to take psychedelics. There are many, many more ways that you can damage yourself with them than there are that you can help yourself with them. Um, and, you know, what that comes down to is like, you know, there's uh, very powerful tools that just don't make sense to use unless you are respecting the power of them. Right. Um, all right. Well, that's a fantastic answer. Um, Ra'el, thank you for joining me. And... Um, and 
by the way, each week I have my guest plug a nonprofit of their choice. Um, did you have one in mind? Yeah, I'd like to say a few things about the Mind and Life Institute. Sure. <clears throat> so the Mind and Life Institute is an organization that was started as a dialogue between uh, the Dalai Lama and a number of Western scientists. And in the 80s, the first meetings were um, more private meetings with bringing together some of the best minds in psychology, cognitive science, and neuroscience with the Dalai Lama and other meditation uh, experts and, and you know, practitioners. And, um, you know, looking at the ideas of the mind uh, through these different lenses and in dialogue. And over the years, the organization has expanded greatly and has become the largest funder of meditation research outside of the NIH, now with the explosion of interest in mindfulness because of the demonstrable efficacy. The NIH has taken over in terms of the number of total dollars put towards research by a given entity for mindfulness, for example, compared to my life. But the number of new investigators who've started over these last 15 years since my life has kind of expanded from being a uh, organization that puts on these special meetings and writes and 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 uh, publishes books resulting from those meetings to a organization that runs a summer research institute for undergraduate and graduate students and early career faculty as well as more senior faculty but as a way of helping all those who are interested in contemplative science to really come together and get to know both the community as it is, as well as, you know, focus on a discussion around a certain topic, which varies from year to year. Um, and also, you know, the way that Summer Research Institute is, is uh, designed is that there's a fair amount of actual meditation practice throughout this week of scientific exploration, um, including one day of silence, pra silent practice um, from, from morning to night. Um, and they also do now an, uh, what's currently a bi-yearly scientific symposium on uh, the International Society of uh, International Symposium of Contemplative Science. Um, it was last November in San Diego, and the November after uh, this so of twenty eighteen, November twenty eighteen, will be in Washington D.C. And you know the organization has just really helped to further the cause of bringing this realm of contemplative science, the study of the potentials for the human mind to transform itself with neuroscience and kind of very considered uh, kind of applications. And um, that includes applications in education, health, um, you know, prison systems, you know, you name it, they're working on it. So mindandlife.org. <laughs> the Mind and Life Institute. That's awesome. And uh, you guys can always go to the herewearepodcast.com website in case you're listening in the car and you don't have a chance to write that down or whatever. It's always posted on uh, there under this episode. So uh, I sure hope we can get you back on again to get uh, a little further into your work. And so thank you again for joining me. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, inquisitive people. Okie dokie, everybody. Another little update. What's going on? 
documentary really, really, really coming along. We went and did all sorts of crazy stuff with a shaman friend of mine and also sat around with the producer and director and ate mushrooms for two days straight, figured out the outline, figured out the scope of it, made the documentary itself feel like a trip and really explored what it's like to be tripping hopefully it's the first one in a docu-series is the plan going to be pitching all of this along with my good trip special hopefully being recorded september september 23rd in austin so real exciting things gonna start pitching this week to all of the different the many outlets that i cannot name right now because i don't want to build up any expectations or anything like that and nothing is certain other than something's going to happen something real good is going to happen very soon very close to making lots of cool things happen so more updates real soon Thanks for the support. If you want to help me out, we, we still we're trying to get animators and everything else and like really make this this uh, documentary stand out and be something special. So you can always go to the herewearepodcast.com website and click on the Patreon, uh, my Patreon account, and support me there. Any Anything you can do will help. Everything I make goes back into making awesome things. I can promise you that. So, um, well, I can't promise you. Sometimes I do waste money on fancy food and stuff, and but uh, even that, I'm pretty. I've been a pretty thrifty uh, person uh, lately. I don't. Uh, I don't own a car or, or uh, pay rent anywhere. So, uh, and I don't have kids. And uh, and still, I put all my money back into this other than a fancy meal or two from time to time. Hey, I deserve it, guys. Why am I telling you about my fancy? <laughs> I like, Look, guys, sometimes I got to get out of the hotel room or I'll drive myself crazy. And the only thing to do is to go and eat at a cool restaurant in a cool city. That's what I do for fun, all right? I don't need to justify myself to you. I don't know why I'm yelling at you guys. It's just, you know, it's just been a stressful time lately, and I've just been, you know, real excited about a lot of things, and I don't know I don't know what's going to come through first or where to dedicate my time and I'm just taking all that out on you. And that's why you guys are my favorite. You guys that listen all the way to the end, even when I go a little crazy, even when I start ranting like a lunatic and I know damn well that I should scrap all this and start all over and I start getting in my head and self-conscious, but I'm going to power through anyway and deliver this with confidence. For you, my favorite. Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. 
The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced ve-a-pe in Spanish, (laughs) he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. (laughs) Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God. (laughs) 